This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. Hi, I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. One of the most highly anticipated plays this spring was Her Honor Jane Byrne at the Looking Glass Theater. The work centered around the time in 1981 when then-Mayor Jane Byrne moved into Cabrini-Green. How does one individual stop gun violence? How do you motivate an entire city to stop gun violence? That's what Mayor Byrne was after. That was playwright Jay Nicole Brooks speaking about the play before it opened on March 9th. But by March 16th, the coronavirus pandemic had shut it down. But whether Her Honor Jane Byrne returns to the stage or not, there's plenty more to come from Brooks. Looking Last just made her a playwright in residence for the next three years. And Brooks has promised other plays on Chicago mayors, including Harold Washington and Rahm Emanuel. Actor, director, and writer Jay Nicole Brooks joins us now. Welcome to Reset. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You know, first take us through the idea of all the work that goes into putting a play up and then unfortunately having a pandemic shut it down within a week of its opening. Well, first, let me lead with love and say that though it was a heartache, it was one of the greatest joys of my life. Putting together a play uh, requires a lot of uh, patience and, and fortitude. There's a lot of research that I like to do. I'm, I'm pretty diligent. I like to get as many of the facts that I can, and then I throw it all away, and I try to create something with a dramatic spine. So it, there was a, a huge effort to put this play on by so many people. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was a heartache that it had to get shut so early. Hmm. Why, why do the play? What, what was it about the story of Jane Byrne, in particular the story of her moving into Cabrini-Green that got your attention? I think I've always uh, been fascinated by Chicago politics. I grew up in one of those households where uh, my mom and brother read, like, three editions of the newspaper. The news was always on, you know, way before the 24-hour news cycle. So there was always that buzz in my house. I was very, very little, but I do remember when Jane Byrne moved into Cabrini-Green, a housing project, and... Um, I didn't understand much of the politics. I just knew that she was a white lady and she was moving into the projects. And, you know, not very many people did that back then. So mm-hmm. I always held on to that memory. Uh, and I do that often as a writer. I store things and then I go back to recollect them. And so Jane was one of those stories. She spoke very clearly to me throughout the years. And I finally sat down and decided to pen a story. It's a it's a, a great way to look at uh, Jane Byrne as opposed to putting on a biography play where it's all about her life, because that was such a, a not just about that mayor at the time, but it was about what Chicago was going through. Some of the same issues that are go- we're going through today in 2020, massive gun violence, 
uh, segregation, inequalities. But but that almost that microcosm explains so much about what Chicago was in 1981 and what it is today. Absolutely. And what it was in 68 and 1919, you know, we've come a long way, but not really. You know, so these stories are all woven. Uh, they're all connected. I didn't want to create a biographical account of Jane Byrne's life. Uh, let me tell you, Jane Byrne had a very colorful and, like, fascinating <laughs> life. Right. And you could have taken many elements that happened to her, and you could have created a story. But this was the one that spoke to me, and uh, I wanted it to be as organic and connected as possible. I grew up uh, on the south side. I'm born on the west side, so I understood segregation really well. So I didn't want to create a white savior story. I wanted to create a story that would actively put what some might call the protagonist right into it. You know, this is not her being elected to office. This is after she's been in office for some time, and, you know, no one's waving flags. The celebration is over. The gunshots are still happening. There's still people at odds. So uh, I feel like 1981 is uh, pretty much like 2020. You know, I read Ben Austin's book on Cabrini Green not too long ago, and and it was interesting because of the experience of 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 Jane Byrne. She, you know, she lived in the I forgot where she lived, but she lived in the Gold Coast or in the Streeterville area, and and the idea yeah. that she was just just a, a stretch, I mean, almost a, a walking distance away from Cabrini Green, but the the way that the city has always been, and the way that uh, you know. Uh, it was, of course, in 1981. Uh, you cross over one area, and and the city's entirely different. Our city has always been divided by viaducts and train tracks, and you know markers. Jane Byrne lived on Chestnut, just off of uh, Michigan Avenue, but that's less than a mile from the location of the Cabrini Green housing project. So. You know, now you go over in that area, there's a target. (laughs) There aren't very many remnants of what it used to be. But Chicago, uh, though it's a bit more integrated now, there are still those same train tracks and viaducts and things that change from block to block, where you can go from uh, indigent neighborhoods to the most posh you know, neighborhoods that have everything from poke to doggy daycare, and, and other people have uh, food deserts. So I just want to give a shout-out of love to Ben Austin. I think it's important that uh, writers of all types try to let folks know what Chicago was throughout the years because uh, erasure is a, a dangerous mm-hmm. thing. It is interesting to me why it's— like, I'd love to know why it's important to tell those stories, to tell the story of Jane Byrne and Cabrini Green from 1981 to an audience in 2020. There's a generation that only knows uh, Airbnb. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, I want people to know that Chicago has always been home to so many different types of folks. We don't often get to see it, especially people that live in underserved communities or uh, hood, the ghetto, the however you want to paint it. And then there are the stories of the folks that live in the most posh areas. We have to blend those those narratives. We, we have to get the truth out there. Otherwise, I fear that we will have a city that lacks uh, soul 
and truth, and it's the only way that we're going to get through this mess that we're in, you know. Mm -hmm. I've always been one to gaze at old architecture. I like ghosts. I think there are ghosts all throughout the city. So for me, that provides so many stories, and Jane Byrne was uh, one of them. She was fascinating. I didn't necessarily agree with her politics, you know, but for me, I wanted to create this play to show uh, my interpretation of this moment of time. And you also met so many other characters that were residents uh, of CHA. There, there were activists. There were just so many people. The story cannot belong to one alone. And so that's why I wrote the, the hmm. Jane Byrne play. Is there any way, I mean, such a, I know how hard it is to put a play up and, and how much money goes into it and the resources. And, and of course, you know, just the, like you said, the sweat equity that goes into putting a play up. <laughs> is there any way, because this was cut short, that, uh, that you or Looking Glass or others may remount this at some point to give audiences when maybe we have a vaccine or something a chance to see your work? Sure, I, I certainly hope so. Uh, the, you know, uh, the team at Looking Glass, we work hard every day to try to figure out how to nurture the community where we are now. And we hope to remount plays uh, someday. Right now, live theater, as you know it, folks, well, it, it really won't be quite the same. We're in this thing across the nation and the world where we're trying to figure out how to bring live theater back because it is essential. Theater can be healing. Uh, theater can be informative. So we're hoping to bring this play back in one way or another. But I have to say, if it doesn't come back, I'm so glad that she got to live for a few short days. Yeah. And that young kids even got, we had some school groups come through to see it. And that made me <laughs> happier than any critic or any sort of <laughs> anybody else coming through. I want to make a work so that these shorties know what the path was so that they can know how to move forward. I, you know, we always turn to our stages, our playwrights, in some cases our, our writers, but uh, we, we do turn to the theater to have these difficult conversations through the work. Uh, and, and you see great work, in, including Her Honor Jane Byrne and others taking on issues, difficult issues of race and, and justice and, and equality. When we don't have the experience to go and, and share in that conversation in a room together because of the pandemic, where are these conversations happening? Where should they be happening? And what do we lose by not having uh, playwrights be able to express themselves in this way? I think that the artist is one of the greatest and most dangerous people ever because we can get into all the places, all right? And you get into those places and you hear the stories and you weave them and you pass them along. If we lose that connection from live theater, we're going to be trapped behind these computers. Now, listen, online media can be a wonderful thing, but there is nothing like coming together in a space and watching magic happen, and it's woven by humans. So I hope that we don't lose that connection. I hope that as we as a society figure out how to move through this COVID world, that we can do so and remember that live theater and, and human performance, it, it does something for you. It's magic. It's essential. And, uh, you know, I hope we don't lose that. Mm. You might be willing to listen to me in the play. You may not be willing to listen to me if we're trying to sit down for coffee talking <laughs> about why racism is bad. 
So I just put all my words into play. I'm an anti-fascist, so hey, I'm getting my words out there one way or another. <laughs> You're going to get them out there. Jane Nicole Brooks, <laughs> a playwright, uh, also actress, uh, writer, director here in Chicago. Uh, you just were named uh, Playwright in Residence uh, for the Looking Glass Theater, which is for three years. How how do you like that? How do you like being a Playwright in Residence? Because you have, have been in uh, different theater companies and different uh, roles. Do you like the idea of, of having a residency at one theater? Looking Glass Theater is my home team. Uh, I, it is where I've grown up, and uh, it's because of Looking Glass Theater that I, I have a career as a writer and as a director. And, of course, I've gone on to do other things and will continue to, but it means the world to me having this uh, Mellon Foundation uh, resident playwright it just means everything to me. It gives me a chance to not only just tell the stories that I want to share. I don't have to cobble together 74 jobs just to pay <laughs> rent. Right, you know, right, that's right. really what a lot of uh, creators face, food insecurity. Uh, you, you're, you're working project to project. You're, you're taking a little bit of money and you're stretching it for three years, and it's not really a sustainable way to live. So I'm grateful to have this opportunity. I hope to create more opportunities like this because, really, this should be the norm. So for the next three years, I get to create more Chicago stories with Looking Glass Theater, uh, my home team, and, and that means I get to also work with other artists that aren't necessarily from Looking Glass because I have this uh, wonderful grant. So I'm very grateful, excited, and hope I don't screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, and when we talk about telling the stories of Chicago history, there's a promise of, of telling more stories through the, I guess, the characters of Chicago mayors of the past. You talked to, uh, teased out in the press release about a play about Harold Washington City Council and also a play about Rahm Emanuel. So tell us, I mean, what, what draws you to telling stories through these figures? I, uh, when I sat down to write the Jane Brown play, and, and I would just mention to people, hey, I'm writing a play about Jane Byrne. They would say, well, you know, Harold. And if you mention Harold, they go, oh, well, you know, Jay Daly and M. Daly. <laughs> people are fascinated with Chicago mayors, and I am one of those people. So this is an entire canon or a trilogy or, uh, you know, it, it's just a bunch of stories that I'm hoping to put together about a specific moment in these mayors' life. I'm not setting out to make biographical plays. Again, these are all people that have rich and interesting and fascinating lives, but you can't get all that information in in a two-hour play. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to... Um, so the next play I'm working on is Harold Washington and the City Council Wars. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, we know that Harold was the first black man to be elected of the city, and there are all these wonderful things about him. But for me, the City Council Wars, and you got Ed Verdoliak and all these other people, that's dramatically interesting to me. So that's where we're going next. And uh, I'm going to get to Rahm Emanuel as well. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to think, too, because your, your brain goes right to the imagery of, of Dick Mills, you know, standing up on top of a desk <laughs> or, you know, the screaming and the yelling and the, and the scenes <laughs> that you see. If you go to YouTube to look at the Council Wars and any of the footage that's up there, you'll see the doorways of people trying to squeeze through and all of this chaos yes. around uh, whether it's city council and council wars or the death of Harold Washington, uh, uh, who was in office. I mean, there's so much richness when it comes to just the the, uh, the visuals that come to. There's nothing like Chicago political theater. Some of the stuff I really can't write. Some of it you just have to record what happened because some of it is so unbelievable. And we don't really see a city council 
uh, today like we did in 1981. They were uh, mm, passionate. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. I love it because today you may see Mayor Lightfoot and, and Alderman fighting or swearing at each other in Zoom, or you may catch a, a hot mic where the mayor says something about uh, somebody who's there. And and people may, you know, uh, you know be aghast at, at what happened or, or talk about it in the moment. But for me, it reflects back to a long political tradition and history of, of mayors being almost not ready for television when it comes to how they interact with uh, the press and, and Chicagoans. Well said. Uh, I remember when I was younger, I would look at uh, Parliament over in the U.K. and how they would just yell at each other. And I'm like, how could they do that? And I'm like, oh, wait, that's what they're doing in Chicago. They're going at it. So I like watching people go at it. My last question for you, just as we've seen some of the uh, partner theaters in Chicago, the Victory Gardens comes to mind, and, and others who who have had reckonings in this moment about uh, institutionalized racism or, or maybe not uh, promoting diversity. For, to be a performer and an artist of color working in Chicago, what does the theater community need to do to be better? <laughs> Confronting systemic racism, patriarchy. You know, we're often forced to move in uh, spaces where we're told that heteronormative is the... You know, there's a lot to break down, and I, I think uh, what can we do is, um, well, we have to identify what these things are, and after you identify it, you have to work tirelessly to tear down all of these systems of oppression. Mm -hmm. That's the only way we can move forward. Well, we look forward to those themes being in the new works uh, that surely will come out of Looking Glass Theater with their new uh, playwright in residence, Jane Nicole Brooks, who has been a playwright, an actor, director, and writer in town. Her honor, Jane Byrne, got to run for about a week before COVID shut it down. And we're looking forward to, to more work. Ms. Brooks, thanks so much for joining us today on Reset. I appreciate it. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks. I'll see you next time. And that's today's Reset. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. Plenty more conversations to come with the people that make Chicago great. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening to Reset from Chicago's NPR station, WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.